This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about investing in non-traditional real estate, how to generate passive income, and ultimately build a life with greater financial freedom. The promise and allure of passive income is undeniable. The idea of making money while you sleep has led to a proliferation of personalities and influencers telling us how to build income streams through dividends, real estate, online courses, ebooks, and more. Unlike the day-to-day income most workers are accustomed to, passive income allows you to receive earnings, royalties, or sales in perpetuity well after the initial investment. Passive income streams complement one's salary and provide stepping stones to creating a life with greater financial freedom. Historically, real estate investing has represented one of the most popular income-building strategies beyond stocks, bonds, or primary residence. However, for many busy tech workers, the idea of becoming a landlord Dealing with broken pipes and evicting tenants can quickly quell any ideas of building a real estate portfolio. In contrast, passively investing in car washes, multifamily properties, or public storage facilities are attractive opportunities that provide cash flow and appreciation without the active management of traditional real estate. Beginning the transition from active investing to passive real estate investing begins with finding a trusted and experienced investment team. My guest today, Whitney Elkins Hutton, is the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com, a national passive real estate investment firm based in the Carolinas with a portfolio valued at over $1.3 billion and fueled by 2,000 passionate investors. As the Director of Investor Education, Whitney passionately helps busy professionals achieve financial freedom through passively investing in cash-flowing real estate in their local communities. Whitney's a partner in over $800 million in real estate with a unique emphasis on self-storage units and car washes across 11 states. And in 2016, she launched Ash Wealth, where she runs her Investor Accelerator Mentorship Program to share her wealth of knowledge and help clients develop mindset, skills, strategies, and network to create financial freedom through real estate. So with that brief introduction, welcome Whitney Elkins-Hutton to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Malcolm. 
Yeah, no, thank you. I definitely appreciate you making time to do this. I just ran through why you're the busiest woman alive. So I appreciate you making some time for us today. I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What else should I have included? You did kind of tell where I'm at today Mm -hmm. as the director of investor education. But, you know, I want to pull out some things that you said in the intro because I've actually experienced that journey myself. So I started off real estate investing in 2002 purely by accident, bought a house with a Mm -hmm. significant other and the relationship fell apart. And here I had a house, all the bills under my name. What do I do? In a situation much like this that we're experiencing in today's environment with an impending recession, you know, exuberance and high inflated asset prices. And anyways, I stopped that house full of roommates, completed the rehab and sold it 11 months later, which was probably my number one investing mistake. Hmm. Long story short, I made more money in selling that piece of property than I did in my day job, which had me traveling 80 hours a week. Now, I think what's different in my story and what you know a lot of people here experience is I was working in public health. And so we're not high income earners by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, anytime you put the word public in front of anything, like, you know, the, the pay rate goes down significantly. But you know, I was bitten by the real estate bug. And fast forward over the next, you know, 10 12 years, I started flipping properties, acquiring properties, and eventually learned that if I wanted to break that paycheck dependence, those golden handcuffs, I needed to learn how to hold on to these properties and get them to cash flow. But it wasn't passive. Everybody said it was passive, but it totally was not passive. Even when I placed my properties with property management, at the time I had over 30 single family homes, it was anything but passive. I was still very much active in securing the financing, managing the manager even down to figuring out problems with Home Depot because the manager ordered the wrong washing machine and it got delivered to the wrong property. You know, just silly things like this. And so for me, I then figured out, well, how can I back myself out of this? And that's really where I made this journey. How am I going to scale but not have to scale my time and involvement in the portfolio? And that's where true passive income through investing in other people's businesses like multifamily syndications, self-storage syndications, car washes, really set me free from not only a financial perspective, but a time perspective and just having that freedom of choice on what I wanted to do with my life and the impact I want to create in the world. I can't wait to dig into all of that that you just said because each of those different types of syndicates, to use your term, each of those different types of properties and their structure has its own set of unique skill set and unique knowledge base that you need to actually have success investing that way. But I want to start off where you started because you don't know this, but you're actually talking to someone who is an accidental landlord the same way in a property that I purchased in Greensboro, North Carolina, of all places, which I know you know exactly where that is, that I didn't intend to be in forever. I thought I was going to do what you ultimately did, which was buy it, live in it for a couple of years until I finished school, turn around and sell it. And this was in September of 2007. And I don't have to tell anybody who's listening to this what happened next. But Whitney's laughing at me because the recession that happened immediately after upended that plan. And I became a landlord for 10 years until I could finally unload the property and literally just break even. So I learned that lesson once and don't ever intend to need to learn that lesson again in the sense that I now have a totally different appreciation for owning multiple units in one structure so that you're not so dependent on one tenant 
to pay their rent and the ability for you then to turn around and pay the mortgage and dealing with the property manager. If you're going to deal with the property manager on one property, you might as well deal with the property manager on 10 or 20 or 50 because it's going to be the same headache to your point. Definitely. And it definitely was not laughing at you. But <laughs> no, no, no. You can laugh because I know you felt my pain. Exactly. You can laugh. De- exactly. Felt your pain. You know, I've taken my fair lumps in real estate as well. It's not always yeah. been, you know, roses for sure. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly kind of the the reason why when we started transitioning our portfolio from fix and flipping, living, mm-hmm. you know, house hacking and fix and flipping to a buy and hold strategy. I had enough wherewithal to know we can't just get one. We have to ramp up to 10. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to 10, I thought that we were going to solve those issues of cash flow stability. You know, we have some sort of element of scale behind us. But when we hit 10, I'm like, no, we actually, with all the vacancies, repairs, we have to get to 20 or 30 pretty quickly. And some people hit 10 and they get smart and they're like, okay, wait, 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 I'm going to go into buy a multifamily building. For us, like we were just kind of so far down the rabbit hole. We just, we had the blinders on and then we picked our head up at 30 properties and then realized that in order for us to actually achieve the financial numbers that we truly wanted for our financial freedom numbers, we were financially independent in 30, but our freedom number that we wanted to hit, we needed 80 properties. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was like, I am burning the candle at both ends, five times in the middle. I'm still working full time. I'm taking care of a small family. I'm the guardian over my grandparents. And my mother's ailing and aging. I need to spend more time with her. Mm-hmm. Adding on another 50 units is just single family units. Repeating this process multiple times just isn't scalable. However, just a little bit more elbow grease, I can go buy one building that has 52 units in it. Mm-hmm. And now I have scale. But you're not only scaling your income, right? You're not 100% occupied or paying bills, right? You've scaled your income. You de-risked a large part of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. You can also, if you buy the wrong property, scale your problems. So this is where I see a lot of people, You know, when they start trying to make these transitions, they're nervous about investing in other people's projects. They try to figure it all out on their own. Their first one or two buildings... I don't suggest jumping from five single family units to 50 or 75 unit property. Sure. You know, I'm glad you said that. I wanted to come back to that too. Yeah, because you could, again, at the end of the day, like scale your problems as well. You know, so kind of cut your teeth on 10 units or 15 units or 20 units if that's the direction you want to go. But here's what I tell people all the time, especially if you're a high income worker, mm-hmm. high net worth individual, tech. Doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, dentists, C-suite, is you probably have a higher and better use of your time than trying to figure out you know, how to individually purchase properties. Mm-hmm. Think about how you can invest in somebody else's business, an expert who's already doing this. And sometimes you can go further faster because one, you're spending your time where you, your knowledge base is right you can you know scale the corporate ladder there increase your income bottom all that as quickly as you can over to the investor quadrant and the cash flow quadrant and we can go through that mm-hmm. if people are unfamiliar with Robert Kiyosaki's work but you can also get greater diversification too whereas if you're trying to build this yourself 
you need to double down on single family properties or small multifamily properties or self storage. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to get starry eyed of all the possibilities you could go into. At some point in time to achieve that proper diversification, that proper scale, you do have to learn to invest in other people's projects. So let's dig into that a little more really quickly, because as you're saying that, right, I'm, I'm imagining myself as this dentist that you're proposing, for example, right? Or I'm the Googler who listens to this and I have high income, like you say, but I'm also working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. So going and identifying a property to invest in, even though it sounds like a great dream, really is just a dream when it comes to me having to find the time to execute it, right? So I hear you saying that and I'm nodding my head and I'm saying, yeah, she's so right. That's a great idea. And then it falls flat because I say, well, how do I find that person or those people who are the expert in their field that allow me to stay the expert in mine while still being able to take advantage of that opportunity? One. And two, how do I know who's actually a real person who's a real expert who's doing the thing? And who's just a TikTok superstar and really good at marketing and I'll never see those dollars again? <laughs> great question. So I'll give you a kind of a little primer on how I find great operators. Sure. And it largely requires you getting out from behind your desk. Mm -hmm. You know, social media is great for generating awareness. I mean, pretty much anybody that has a business probably has some sort of social media or web presence. But the way to actually find these high-quality operators, honestly, I love going to conferences. Mm. And so two of my favorite conferences are the Multifamily Investor Nation Conference mm -hmm. Convention. Actually, it's in June in Charlotte, North Carolina. That is an amazing conference. All the who's who in multifamily investing are there. And even alternative investing. So if you wanted to learn about self-storage, how to do 30-day rentals, you know, and there's even educational topics on that, but you know, particularly multifamily investing. Another one is the best ever conference. That one's in Salt Lake City. Actually, it's the first week of March this year in Salt Lake City. But the reason why I love those conferences is because you are going to be in front of operators who are doing this full time and you get to meet them, look them in the eye, see their projects, hold conversations about what their projects are doing. My next best opportunity to find operators are to get into investment groups. You might have a local investor group. And so you can actually learn who other investors are investing with. Mm -hmm. There are some other groups that are online, like Left Field Investors. They're an amazing group. If you're a accredited investor, you know, there's CrowdDD. You can join that group. And there's a lot of others investor groups. Like we have one here. I live in Boulder, Colorado. We have the Boulder Investing Group. We actually do monthly meetings and hikes and we share our opportunities with each other. But also, you know, who's doing well and who's not in this market. So you get to learn, you know, just kind of the real behind the scenes there. Then you can kind of a third tier approach is Googling people online. But to your point is yeah. how do you suss out if they're a good marketer, everybody presents well online. Oh, they should. <laughs> if they have a good marketing team. And honestly, some of the best operators in the United States that I've worked with personally, I invest with multiple operators myself. My husband and I are in scores of deals. And we don't just invest with passiveinvesting.com. We, as a limited partner, you get to control who you invest with, where you invest, and what deal you go into. Mm -hmm. And so 
if those are your three areas of control, those are also your three areas of diversification. And sometimes these amazing operators don't always have the best online presence because they're so focused on building the business and the asset. Now that I think is starting really to catch up mm-hmm. with people over the past like, you know, five or six years, you know, just with particular algorithms and such. But anyways, those are a few key ways to find operators. But okay, just because you found one, you have to be able to vet them, right? Yeah. That's the biggest piece is just being able to vet who you're talking to because they could talk a great game. There's a lot of people in real estate who are very good at talking a great game and then never showing up when it's time to put a shovel in the dirt. And I don't say that to disparage anybody, but you've worked with enough GCs and developers and everybody else to know what I'm saying is not like speculation. It's just a fact. It's the fact of the business, unfortunately. Well, and and not just real estate, just passive investing in general. You could be investing Mm -hmm. in a debt fund. You could be investing in, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining. That's pervasive across all private equity investments is you have to be able to vet the operator. And so I actually have a weekly webinar that I do it's called a masterclass and it's called Passive Investing Made Simple. And I invite anybody who needs to learn these skills to join that masterclass. I also do monthly boot camps where we actually dig into a particular skill. Like, what are the top 20 questions you need to be asking an operator? You know, how do you vet a market? A deal comes through your inbox. How do you vet the deal? Now, here's the number one thing. And you probably have experienced this, Malcolm, is, you know, when we were growing up, okay, for me, you know, I'm in my 40s, what was available to me? Stocks, bonds, and mutual fund. You went to work, you got a job, you contribute to your retirement. When you looked at what stocks, bonds, and mutual funds you were going to invest in, for me, what did I pick? The ones that had the highest yield. (laughs) So people are trained to chase yield. Mm-hmm. So that trains you to look at the deal. When you get into private equity investing, you have to flip this model completely on its head. Hmm. You know, when I'm looking at investing in stocks, you know, in my 20s and 30s, nowhere did I ever consider that not picking on Elon Musk, but that he could send out a tweet and it could tank the stock pricing, right? Yeah. You know, that just happens to be a prevalent example right now. But when you're investing in private equities, you have to flip this model because it's all about the who that you invest with. Mm-hmm. So get really good at vetting operators first. And that means you have to get get on the phone with them, right? Because you're only going to get so much information off of that marketing profile. But you do have to learn how to, you know, ask questions. This is where I really love working with like managers, directors, supervisors, Mm C-suite people, because they have interviewing skills. They have these business skills already built. And so you're just taking that and you're translating it into putting to use for your own investing portfolio. I would add to that though, that... So one of the cases that I make, one of the arguments I make on this show on a regular basis is that you know we as people in this country do a great deal of investing in our traditional education. So you know you go to college, you get a degree in something... You might go to grad school even and get extra degree, terminal degree, even in that thing to become even better at that thing, to learn how to make more money doing that thing. And then for whatever reason, we don't spend a dime on our financial education to learn 
how to protect the money once we get it, how to enhance the money once we get it and multiply it and all those kind of things. And a lot of these courses that you're referring to that would help me learn how to vet operators and investors and everything else cost a hundred, two hundred, five hundred dollars, right? Which for a lot of the people who listen to this show would be a drop in the bucket. But when you bring those courses to people's attention, they scoff at how much it costs. You're going to charge me for that? I have to sit through. No, I just want to jump into the deal. You tell me who I need to talk to, and then I'll know that that's the person that I should be doing it with. And so I just want to tack on to what you're saying. The fact that you are going to have to do some legwork because nothing worth having comes easy. But then also, it's no other way to know who knows what they're talking about when they're presenting to you and who doesn't unless you've gone and done your own homework to understand what deal points matter, which don't, which buzzwords don't mean anything and get thrown around a lot and which things actually make a difference when someone's showing you their pro forma or whatever else. And so I know you're on a roll and I jumped in there, but I just felt the need to add a little something to it because anytime I get the opportunity to encourage people to invest in their financial education, I have to seize it. Well, I actually offer the masterclass in the bootcamp completely free. No strings attached. You, you do have to change your email in order to get like notified that the class is happening. Sure. But that's it. Why though? I wanted to ask you about that because you have built this real estate portfolio that we'll talk a little bit more about in a second. And you very well could just go off on your merry way. Why bother investing in other people's financial educations this way rather than just worrying about Minding your own business, pun intended. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so I come from a... You, you were talking about terminal degrees. I have two. I have a PhD and I have a master's. In public health, that is... Again, I'm still a public servant at heart. Hmm. And for the longest time, my identity was so tied to my job. And, you know, Here I was investing in real estate since 2002. And I didn't leave full-time for real estate until 2018. And that was probably 10 years too late. I should have like left much earlier just because my identity was tied so much to my job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how can I serve others? And you know, to me, like real estate just seems so self-serving. I'm building my own portfolio. I'm creating my passive income. I'm, getting, I'm building equity. It seemed very self-serving. And then it finally dawned on me. And I'm like, you know what? is one of the biggest obstacles for people in the United States is their own financial education. You just said it. And I was like, this is a public health issue. I can take all these skills that I have in public health and education and training and put them to great use teaching people how to do this. Now, it didn't feel aligned to create programs, highly paid programs, and not have something readily accessible for people that they could engage in that would give them their basic education and knowledge and then help them solve this issue now. There are books out there. I mean, everything that I learned, I mean, I trust me, I've paid tens of thousands of dollars for my own education, financial education. Sure. But 80% of it is free right now. And that's amazing. You just have to engage in that education. And you still have to be discerning about who you learn from, right? But yeah, so you ask why I do this is because I fully believe that the world would be a better place if everybody had a basic financial education knowledge and was empowered to do something about it for themselves. You know, there's plenty out there. I believe the world is not out to get us. 
I believe the world is happening for us. I believe they're in complete abundance. We just have to work to go get it. It's not going to be given to us. And so how can I make that easier for people? You're reminding me that I meant to ask you about something else that you said that struck me earlier on, where you made this difference between financial freedom and financial independence. And I tend to use those two words interchangeably to describe basically the same thing, but I get the impression they mean two completely different things to you. So could you say really quickly what that distinction or that difference is that you're you're making between the two that you're trying to help as many folks as, as you just described mm-hmm. find their own version of it? Yeah. So financial independence is really a milestone, a stop off, if you will, a milestone on your journey to financial freedom. Hmm. So there's actually two additional milestones before. So if you indulge me for a minute, I'll go through all of them. Please. So the first one, when you are trying to you know, build your passive income portfolio, really, you're probably trying to alleviate a pain, which is generally some sort of security. Like, I just want to be able to, like, if I lost my job, I can keep the lights on, the heat on, food on the table, right? And that's great. And I'm going to pause for a second because most people, when they get on this passive income journey, you know, maybe financial independence, retire early journey, as it's also called, they think they have to go straight for financial independence. Well, that's a big elephant. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. The first bite would be the stop off at financial security. Figure out what that dollar amount is. And that's really all you're trying to do is get enough passive income coming in to take care of those basic needs, you know, for at least a year, even, you know, maybe not even for in perpetuity, just a year. So you, you lost your job, something happens, major downturn in the market, you know, downsizing in your particular area of employment, you're not hung out to dry. Mm-hmm. The next stop then is financial vitality. Once you have your security needs met, then it's like, okay, how can I start like living a little bit bigger life, covering some of my traveling, clothing that I like to have, haircuts, whatever, personal vitality, but not into perpetuity, just maybe even for a year as well. So you've got your security met, now your vitality needs met. You're like, if you lost your job, you'd be like, okay. I don't have to completely cut all the way back. I don't, I'm not going to wreck my emergency savings, but I can still live life for about a year and keep my standards high. Now, financial independence is where you are able to have enough income coming in to where you can cover your current standard of living or like in perpetuity, right? But financial freedom is where you actually get to level up and have the life you want. Right. Most of us, you know, when we get on this journey, we want probably a bigger house, a better car, or to travel more, you know, travel the world. Financial independence covers our current lifestyle. Financial freedom covers the lifestyle that we want. Got it. And there's actually one stage past that, which is absolute freedom. And these are you think of like the billionaires, you know, in the stage. They can do whatever they want with whomever they want, whenever they want. So that's a whole different place to worry about getting to that. Frankly, I could die tomorrow having never been Jeff Bezos and be just fine. Mm -hmm. But the other things that you just described matter to me a lot more. And so I didn't think about the difference between financial independence and financial freedom that way. But now that you've described them, I think that you've given me even a totally different bit of language to use to explain, you know, the way that we should look at this. Because I like the way that you position financial independence as your ability to maintain your current standard of living without 
having to leave the house to earn a paycheck tomorrow. But financial freedom allows you to also level up from there and build in some luxuries and that sort of thing, because those are two completely different targets for two completely different people. And I like that it allows you to kind of choose your own adventure, say, right? Do I care about being Whitney and having close to a billion dollar real estate portfolio? Or am I okay owning 12 properties that pay me enough passive income to cover the one property that's my actual primary residence and keeps me from having to go to work tomorrow or any other day? And I'm good there, right? Like I get to choose that for myself based on, I like the way that you position that. I use what I think are a little bit more practical terms to describe these levels, like where you were just going through the progression. For me, it's like when you walk into a restaurant and you sit down at the table and they put the menu in front of you and you look and you order whatever looks good to you, you don't even ask what market price is that day. You just order it, you pay the check and you go on about your business. That's one level of financial, I don't even know what to call it based on your definition there, but (laughs) financial milestone, I'll call it that. And then the next one from there is, you know, I want to go on vacation and I'm booking my travel based on where I want to stay and what time I want to leave and come back, not based on what the cost of the plane tickets are or the resort is going to cost, or is it cheaper to go during the week or over the weekend or whatever. I want to go on these dates and I'm going and I'll find the airline that's got the more comfortable flights on my schedule and that's just how I plan my travel. Like to me, those are two significant milestones in the course of a working person's life that you can hit and say, okay, I feel like I've built in some luxury for myself and get to experience. But nowhere in there is that financial freedom that you're talking about where even without having to leave the house to earn a paycheck, I'm able to level up a little bit and also go to those same restaurants, high-end, diner, dive, whatever it is, or travel to the places that I'm talking about. And then the next level from there is chartering Mm -hmm. a jet to go on that vacation and not worrying about whether it means you can make your mortgage or not. Well, I think you actually came up with some great examples of the difference between financial independence and financial freedom, right? Financial independence, you might still have to look at those flight times and figure out like what fits your budget, right? And make those type of budgetary choices because you haven't like elevated to the next level. You know, the financial freedom, probably that being able to book when you want to travel in your own timeline, that probably follows in that financial freedom bucket. But here's the thing. I think the take-home point that I want everybody to realize is you might aspire to one bucket in your heart right now. Mm-hmm. There are milestones to meet along the way. And we still have to celebrate those milestones along the way. Because it's so natural for us as human beings, especially high-achieving yep, individuals, to get close to a goal and then just kick the goalpost. And then you never celebrate how far you come, right? And especially if you have a spouse or significant other that is not as high-achieving as you are, you can kind of like end up dragging them along. I mean, I don't know if, you know, as a financial advisor, you experience this where the couples are a little disconnected in where they think they are with their many goals and where they're going. But, you know, we work with a lot of folks in tech and usually folks in tech tend to couple up with other folks in tech. And so we're talking about personality type A married to a type A plus. No, no problem there. A lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like we're talking about some real overachievers here. But no, I take your point that sometimes you end up having to kind of pull and the other person's like, you know, slow down and let's celebrate. And somewhere in the middle, 
is probably the right answer, but you take me to sort of where I wanted to go with this ultimately, because, you know, this is the place tech workers come to get smarter about their money. And so one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that your company offers non-traditional real estate investment opportunities that I alluded to in the opening, which greatly differs from the traditional investment in a single family home or renting it out on Airbnb and those kind of things that we were talking about initially. So why should tech workers or any other high earning, high achievers like we're talking about be giving these non-traditional real estate investments some serious consideration? So I'm talking, you know, the public storage, like we mentioned, the car washes, those kind of things. Why should we be focusing there more so or separately from a single family or even a multifamily? Well, I think it's creating leverage, right? I can't just jump right to like the higher and best use of your time, but how do you create leverage? Mm-hmm. Right? If you're a tech worker who's working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you want exposure in these areas. Maybe you love the returns, you see the value. You don't have time to go figure out all the puzzle pieces. You don't have time to become the expert in all the different strategies or the experts in the market or you know, build the network that you need to um, find the deal or secure credit and lending. And that's where it becomes really attractive in investing with great operators because essentially you're creating leverage, financial leverage, time leverage. That operator, they have that expertise and knowledge in that particular investment strategy, be it multifamily, self-storage, car washes. They have the market knowledge and moreover, the network in that market to find and secure great deals. They have the ability to go secure great credit and lending on those projects. They have the ability to pool other investor funds together or to take down larger institutional grade assets that tend to be more stabilized, honestly. They have the ability to put together all the team, right? Because when you're buying a building on your own, you have to have broker, lender, an accountant, a lawyer. If you do a 1031 exchange, now you got a 1031 exchange provider. If you're going to do a cost segregation analysis, now you have to have that provider. You have to have the auditor. You have to have somebody that's helping monitoring the finances, running asset management, day-to-day operations. That operator brings that entire team together. And biggest opportunity is you get access to that expert knowledge, expert leverage, and you get your time back. You get a share in the profits. Now, here's the thing. We're kind of back full circle. You have to know how to find and vet great operators in order to protect your capital. Because that's probably the number one risk in today's market. But that's why somebody would do this. Because they can actually scale an amazing portfolio where they're getting cash flow, equity, tax benefits, capital preservation. They're getting to take advantage of amazing lending terms. Everybody's, they're going, Whitney, really in today's market? Guys, even if lending is still at seven, eight percent, we're still historically low <laughs> well, on debt. So to that end, though, I'm glad you brought that up because the debt and the cost of debt doesn't necessarily matter so much when compared against the returns, exactly. right? So the cost to get into the party doesn't really matter to me if I had a good time. It's only in the absence of that good time that I care about what the cover charge was. So what are sort of the average returns that you see in a non-traditional type of entity like a car wash or public storage or something like that 
versus what we know to be the average return from a 50-unit apartment building, for example. So if the 50-unit apartment building, maybe I see something like an 8 or 9% net return each year, is that comparable and the difference is I've just kind of diversified my portfolio or is it, you know, on a car wash, for example, I might see one and a half times or one and a quarter times or two times that of a traditional real estate investment? Yeah. So I'm going to answer that question in two different ways. And then I think we should also kind of have a, another small conversation on the debt because it isn't just about the price of the debt, it's mm-hmm. the type of the debt too mm-hmm. that we want to have our eyes on, especially as a passive investor. But as far as returns, you know, we've exited eight multifamily deals and we've generated 26.1% IRR to our limited partner investor, 29.8% ARR to our limited partner investor, which equates to about a 1.6 equity multiple in 27 months. Mm -hmm. And so that's not for a five-year hold, right? If we had held those properties to five years, we probably would have been closer to two and a half you know, nudged up a little bit equity multiple on that because our hold would have been longer. So we have some amazing returns within 27 months on those multifamily properties. Now, okay, past performance does not indicate future <laughs> returns. Okay, you're probably everybody here is probably very familiar with that language. But we're still underwriting our IRRs, you know, to 15%. And above. These are the internal rates of return. Internal rates of returns. And the reason why I love using that number is because it takes into account time. And now I can compare deal to deal and understand what can I expect that deal to perform at. Now, any good operator is going to underpromise and overdeliver. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, we underpromise to our investors. You know, when we put out a deal and we say we're targeting a 14 or 15% internal rate of return. We probably are eyeballing 20 to 25 upon exit, but we would rather promise low and then come in higher for our investors. Mm -hmm. Now, on car washes, car washes are really unique. It's not commercial real estate, it is a business that owns real estate. Mm -hmm. And so it's very cash flow intensive. And so for that particular portfolio, we're not looking just to hold it five years and trade up into another asset. We're actually looking to scale 250 to 300 locations and IPO that. And so the potential exits on there can be much higher. Now, we're not showing the underwriting for an IPO or even a large roll-up exit to a REIT, which is kind of our plan A.2. We are actually showing individual sale of every single asset to our investor, which we're still looking at a 2.5 to 3x equity multiple. There's a bounce on upon like that individual sale. It got my attention as we were gearing up to do this show because I had just been reading a good deal about, especially in the Financial Times, about how so much private equity money has made its way into the car wash space. And so you see the different brands that will pop up and they'll be similar in one specific geographical area, right? So all of the name brand car washes in North Texas will keep the same branding so that everybody in the area knows that like these belong to the same family. But it would be the same PE fund that also owns the similarly structured set of car washes here in DC where I am. And then there's a whole nother set of similarly positioned car washes in Denver, for example, that and that's where the opportunity is. It's at scale. It's not so much one or two 
units as a car wash operator, but it's the scale of it because the margins are decent, but volume of that cash business, like you're talking about at scale is what becomes attractive for it. So as you're saying that, like the light bulb is going off in my head that this is why it's worth your while as a private equity investor, not so much for the longer term buy and hold potential that a passive real estate investor might be looking for, but more so for the opportunity to aggregate all of these different cash flows into one beautifully wrapped package and then take it to some bigger facility for a tender offer three years, five years later that has that liquidity event that gets your capital back for all of that work. And that's where you've got to find that manager like you're talking about, but also access to deal flow to even know that this is happening around you to be able to be part of the conversation when the opportunity comes. Mm -hmm. Now, there are different opportunities out there. And I really want to kind of draw people's attention because there are operators that are scaling through franchise models. Mm -hmm. And there's no right or wrong here, but there's some stark differences. In the franchise model, the operator may or may not own the land. So there's underlying business risk for the profit and loss statement, right? What happens to land rents? What happens if the landowner decides to sell the land out from underneath the car wash? Then also, they don't own the brand when you're investing in a franchise model. And so now some operators are creating their own brand like we are. But if you don't own the brand, now you don't also own how you can market the entire market share of that brand, right? And you can be impacted by somebody else who also owns a franchise across town, how they run their business. So there's some element, there's some additional business risk there. For us, what we are seeing the opportunity in is owning the land, owning the brand, Mm -hmm. moving these clients that are using the car wash from single pay to monthly recurring revenue, which will continue to drive up the value of the business. And there was no third-party management in the space. So this is like hearkening back to self-storage back in 2006, 7, 8, and 9, where we're seeing this early consolidation. So we're really at the tip of the iceberg of what will start to happen in the car wash space. And it's proven out over the past 15 years to be a pretty recession-resilient you know, asset class. Now, some people here would be like, wait, we haven't had that many recessions in the past 15 years. Yes, and we've seen dips in the market and we have the data to understand what happens in this industry when those dips happen. And counterintuitive, um, car wash membership is not a large chunk of the the client's monthly income that they bring home. So they're going to renegotiate their home, their utilities, all these other bills that are much larger first. Two, when you're in kind of a downward market, most people can't go get lending to buy another car. We saw during COVID, you couldn't get a new car because we didn't have chips to put in the cars to build a new car. Still. So people actually take better care of their vehicle. So that membership actually becomes more important. We ran into an issue with our own car where we needed to hang on to it for probably two years extra than we really wanted to. And my husband was washing it like once a month. Mm-hmm. The average user actually washes their car 1.8 times a month. And it only takes about 80 cents to a dollar to wash a car between chemicals and water and electricity. Now, you still have the overhead of like the labor, the facility charge and stuff like that to figure in. But if the monthly membership is $25 and they're only washing the car 1.8 times a month, you have a really hefty OPEX margin there to work from. And you're recycling a lot of those supplies and 
water especially. It's become very environmental these days. Yeah. So I want to go back though for a second because we got super into the weeds here and started talking about the Whitney of today, who is this fully formed real estate mogul, dare I say, that has it figured out to some extent now. I know you'll tell me you don't have it all figured out because we're always learning, but I want to go back a little bit because I'm thinking about, so on you guys' website, the PassiveInvesting.com website, you guys discuss right out there the requirements for being an accredited investor. And, you know, that's basically anybody who has $200,000 of gross income as an individual or $300,000 of gross income as a couple or a million dollars or more in net worth outside of your primary residence, right? So that's plenty of people who listen to this podcast, but it's also plenty of people probably who don't. So I want to go back 20 years before you got to this place and ask you, what are some of the lower stakes ways you recommend people get started building their passive income portfolio to be able to scale up to what we're talking about now, two decades after? No, definitely. So one of the things that we're offering or will be offering at PassiveInvesting.com is a Regulation A fund. So Mm. we're... Investors, sophisticated investors can invest alongside some of our deals through this fund. And Mm -hmm. so lower minimums, it'll just give availability for those people who are not accredited to get access to some of these private investments. So that's coming. We're probably about six months out on that. So if anybody's interested, they can reach out to me and I can keep them on our shortlist and let them know where we're at on that status. Now for me, how I did this... Again, you know, I came from public health. My husband works in the government, you know, not high income earners. We didn't even equal one check of somebody, you know, on here. So we actually just started buying single family property. Well, first of all, we started off fixing and flipping, mm-hmm. living flipping and house hacking. So we started up building buckets of equity that way. So you started off the podcast talking about your house in Grisrow. We started doing that with our primary residence. We'd move in, fix it up sell it and then use the 121 exclusion to keep a lot of that gain that we had created in fixing up the property tax-free. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. We would just go find a similar property. We weren't trading up to get a bigger house. We would just go find a similar property and do that again. And we take that money and now go invest in our real estate business and buy rentals. That's how we were doing that. So not only are you getting the 121 exclusion, I'm not anybody's accountant or tax advisor here, but sometimes I can't help myself. And what you just pointed out, that 121 exclusion (laughs) allows you to avoid having to give $500,000 as a couple or two fifty dollars as an individual of the gain you receive selling your primary residence back to the IRS. But then there's also the function of, I bought this house as my primary residence with loan terms that are the best you can possibly get on a piece of residential real estate because primary residence is going to be the most advantageous as far as the loan is concerned until you start getting into larger structures and such, right? If you go to buy a property as either an investment property or a rental property or vacation rental is what I was trying to think of, the bank's going to increase the rate by, you know, as much as a point, point and a half to make up for their risk. Buying it as your primary residence each time, like you just said, you do get more favorable loan terms. So it's kind of a twofer that I just heard you describing and like couldn't help myself but get excited as you were sharing that little nugget because I can see how that could lead to, okay, now we're pulling out 
25, 50, $100,000 each time we have a win and being able to invest that into our longer term investment portfolio. Absolutely. So other advantages by starting that way is you could less down, right? You can utilize what they call a 203k loan to wrap Mm -hmm. in the rehab, right? It's kind of like a bridge loan for an investor so they can buy the property that's, you know, a little needs a little love and they can rehab it and they get their costs fronted to them. And then you refinance out of the 203k loan. There's so many different ways. You just have to get a little bit creative with your vision. Um, house hacking, you know, you move into a house and you bring somebody in to help, you know, pay the bills. Now, mm-hmm. if it's a single family house, you may or may not want roommates. That's why duplexes, you can access with a primary mortgage one to four units. You can get a quadplex. And so somebody can essentially move in, house hack, move into one unit, house hack the other three units. After two years, move out, put a fourth renter in, go do this all over again. I was just reading in the Mortgage Bankers Association's newsletter that homes with ADUs sit the least amount of days by far. Market, even in the last six months, you know, downturn in the real estate market, homes with ADUs sit less than a week, no matter where in the country you are. Yeah, I would believe it. And especially in some of these metro, you know, larger metropolitan service areas, they need more urban infill. Mm-hmm. And so how do they achieve that? Most people aren't going to tear down their house and put up a duplex or, you know, do a lock off in their basement. But it's easy enough to pop a unit over the garage and create another apartment situation. And so, especially where I live in Boulder and Denver, we're starting, and I know this is also happening in Southern California, those ADU regulations come into play. Like the municipalities are actually making it easier for people to add those ADUs. Those are also some great viable ways for people to get in. Now, somebody here is like, I'm not moving from my primary. I have a 2.5% interest rate from 2020. Not happening. What can I do? Well, you jump to the next level, which is starting to buy single-family properties or small multifamily properties in cash-flowing markets that are still appreciating. So I think people get fixated. Do I want to be in markets perhaps invest in my own backyard where we're seeing huge appreciation, but zero cash flow? Mm-hmm. Or do I you know, invest in markets where there's no appreciation and just tons of cash flow? I would look for what we call linear markets where there's a balance between cash flow and appreciation. Now, cash flow is a little compressed right now because asset prices have taken a big leap mm-hmm. in the past couple of years. And rents, you see a 10% increase on, say, a $200,000 house year over year. increase on the same rents for that $200,000 doesn't equate (laughs) to the same cash flow margin that you had. It's not timing the game. It's time in the game Mm -hmm. that's going to get you there. So my last question as I get ready to wrap this up actually has probably nothing to do with PassiveInvesting.com or any of the other interests that you currently have. So you can kind of take that hat off for a second and relax your shoulders a little bit. But let's say for a moment, you never accidentally even found your passion for passive real estate investing, right? So you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making. And also you couldn't mention being an author because I know you just finished writing a book that's about to be released and I don't want you to take the easy way out. So let's say none of that was on the table there. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Wow. 
well, if I could do anything, I would probably mm-hmm. be money's like, not a factor. So we're talking financially not. free. I would be coaching in some form or fashion, probably coaching trail running, mm-hmm. mountain biking, still health coaching because I did do private practice health coaching for a while. I loved it. And I also coaching like little kids soccer. I just have a passion of like working with little kids. But I love coaching. I would probably still be using similar skills, just maybe in a different arena. Hmm. Okay. That is not necessarily where I thought you were going to go the moment when I said money's not a factor and I saw the smile that it brought to your face to even think about that. I didn't know where that was going to go. I thought it would include a yacht somewhere in like the Mediterranean or something. So I'm (laughs) glad to see how you brought that back. You know, everybody's journey is so different, right? So I'm glad we had an in-depth conversation between the financial independence and financial freedom because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though we gave parameters for it, like what is required for somebody to hit their numbers in financial freedom, like for you, is going to be different for me. I am the type of person that is happy as a clam in a tent in the woods. <laughs> like my, my financial freedom numbers are pretty low. But whereas I have friends that are, they want to be jet setting like on the Amalfi Coast. Like mm-hmm. they have a totally different financial freedom vision. So it's different for everybody. I find that every time I travel somewhere outside of the country, that financial freedom number changes for me just slightly. Like each time I say, you know, I think I'm good right here. I get exposed to something else that I say, ah, but I got to level up my vacations now to get to it. So that number has to increase a little bit so I can come back here every so often. So we'll see. Yeah. Leveling up experiences for sure. It's not about, for me, like how I travel so much, but like the experiences that we have when we travel. I love investing in, in those memories. Yeah. Well, thank you, Whitney. I really appreciate your time. You've been so generous with it today. And this, you know, I know is going to be a great episode. So certainly appreciate you making the time to do this. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or passive investing after this goes live? Absolutely. You can find me at passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com. And it's a subpage on the passiveinvesting.com website, but I have some free tools and an ebook there on how to get started in passive investing. And you also get access to my calendar if you want to talk about all things real estate. Actually, too, what's the name of the book? Oh, the book that, yes, we launched March 1st, and it's Resilient Women in Life and Business. And so had a wonderful experience writing with 17 other women this book. So it's already posed to be an international bestseller. So check it out. Awesome. Well, listeners, if you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money, and feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. And that email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, To review the show notes or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, 
The web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...